If you take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis 40, I am uh, feeling like I am back in school again. I remember going to college, and uh, we've had students go back even yesterday back to college, but I can always remember either from the uh, fall semester to the spring semester, or if it was summer break, it didn't matter. I had classes that built on one another. Uh, when you're taking Greek, you build on the Greek language, and so you have certain vocabulary memorized and ending of nouns and verbs and all of these things, and you would be gone just for three weeks over winter break, but you'd come back and you'd be in a panic because you're like, what are these words? I, don't, I have no idea what this is. And there's this panic because you're like, this doesn't even seem familiar to me. When did, it, when did we discuss this? When did we talk about this? And so the teachers were gracious enough in those first couple of days to give us quizzes, which that wasn't what we were really excited about. But what they did is they forced us to go back and look at all the vocabulary and look at the endings of the verbs and the nouns to be ready. And then they would get into new material. That's kind of where we're at, because the last time we got into the book of Genesis was in the middle of November. And so for us, here we are in the middle of January, we've had two months of other things going on, and you're just kind of like, what's going on? How did we get to where we're at? Why are we in Genesis chapter 40? Why just suddenly drop in there? And we just have to remind ourselves of what this book is uh, telling us about. It's where everything begins. Without the book of Genesis, we even looked at it last week and the way the Hebrews viewed it in Jesus' time, the way we view it now, you've got to have Genesis to understand what else is going on in your Bible. You understand that God intended mankind to, to create them for fellowship with him, but mankind went and did their own thing. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tells us that. But in the midst of that, God promised someone that would come to defeat uh, Satan and sin. Genesis 3.15, this is the promise. And somebody through the line of the woman is going to do this, to crush Satan's head and the, the power that Satan has over mankind. And the rest of the book, as you read through Genesis, is, is kind of getting us down to finding the, the line at least through who Jesus is going to do this. I mean, God has to judge the world after about 2,000 years because their sin is so incredibly bad that every thought of their heart is only evil continually. So God brings the flood and brings worldwide uh, catastrophe, saving eight individuals out, Noah and his family. Start off a new family line. You get to chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis and you have these nations, 70 of them, that are there, but uh, they're great and mighty nations that rule the world. But in the midst of that, God chooses one individual, a man in the middle of uh, Mesopotamia in a city called Ur, and God calls him and his family to leave that land and go to a land that God would show them. And that God would make of him a great nation and God would bless him. And those that bless that nation would be blessed. Those that curse that nation would be cursed. And God promised this to Abraham. But as you look at Abraham's life, he's 75 years of age and you're thinking he has no children. How could he possibly be the founder of a great nation? And you work through a major portion of Genesis where you're going, how can you have this happen? And, and Abraham tries to help God out on a few occasions doesn't go so well but eventually when you get to chapters 20 and 21 you read through there you find uh, the fact that finally abraham has a son of promise 
One that God said, this is the one through whom the line's going to happen, a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac eventually, he gets married over a period of time, and after a while, you're wondering if he's going to have children, but finally he has two, Jacob and Esau. And those two brothers get along like cats and dogs. They don't get along at all. They fight all the time. In fact, by the time you get to the end of the story where they're together, one saying, I can't wait till dad dies because I'm going to murder my brother. You go, well, how's this going to work out? Jacob flees for his life, goes to a far-off land. There for 20 years, he serves as a slave to, well, his father-in-law. And he ends up having 12 sons and one daughter, at least that we know of. And they come back to the land of Israel, and what we have now entered into is the last chapter of Genesis. It starts in Genesis 37 and verse 2, where it says, these are the generations of Jacob. And what that means is this, is we're not looking at Jacob's life, we're looking at his sons. That's the way Moses broke it up. Whenever you say, these are the generations of, you see that statement? That's Moses' way, indicating new section of the book. And we're introduced to a character by the name of Joseph. He's the second to last son in line. And he's one who's always getting dreams. His dad loves him because he was the son of the one wife that was the favorite wife, Rachel. And as such, he got privileges that the brothers just were angry about that he got privileges of leadership responsibility supervising even though he's the one of the youngest ones in the family and he has dreams to start off with that indicate the fact that the family is eventually going to come and bow to him that he is going to be the leader even his parents mother and father are going to bow to him And we know probably the rest of the story is that Joseph's brothers can't put up with them. They finally get to a point where Joseph is sent on a mission to find them. They're 50 miles away from home. They're thinking, ah, here's this dreamer. We can get rid of him. They're going to kill him. Somebody at least has the mind to say, well, let's put him in a pit for a little bit, and then we'll kill him. Then they come up with the idea, well, let's sell him off in slavery. We'll get some money off of him, but we'll tell dad he's been murdered off. And so you have Joseph, a a young man who seemingly has a connection with God. God has said certain things about him, and and he's an individual that kind of focuses on God, who's been taken out of the, the picture, and he's been wandered or led down to Egypt. In the meantime, we have a focus on one of his brothers, a guy by the name of Judah. Judah just shows he's just as bad as all of his brothers. We know that some of his brothers are murderers. Simeon and Levi are murderers. Reuben is an immoral man. You read the story in Genesis chapter 38 of Judah, and he's an immoral man. And we cover 20 years of his life in one chapter there. The 20 years that uh, is when Joseph is in Egypt and is finally going to get to where he needs to be at in God's plan that God is working over the brothers. Because when we finally meet the brothers and they come to Joseph, they're changed individuals. But it's 20 years of God having to work them over. Judah is one of them where at the end of the story there where he's uh, committed immorality and he's about to murder off uh, his daughter-in-law. 
who he's accusing of all sorts of immorality, and then he suddenly realizes that she was the one attempting to keep the family line going. He says this, she's more righteous than I am. And in in an instance of clarity, he finally realizes what a wretched individual he is, and at least she is trying to do what's right. And God takes that and changes him. And as you see, God takes the 20 years to work over the brothers. But we only get one story about Judah. Far as the brothers, 20 years of silence, except for that one story. But it takes us back to the story of Joseph. And we're to chapter 39 at this point, And we looked at this last uh, when we got together. And it's the story of Joseph going down to Egypt. And he lands in an individual's house by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. He's the one responsible for protecting the Pharaoh of Egypt. And God, you find as you look in in verse 2 of chapter 39, it says that the Lord was with Joseph and made him a prosperous man. Uh, You go, how in the world is this possible uh, that this is the case? Well, it's because the Lord is taking care of him and has a plan for him. And as you read this story, you find that Joseph is confronted with the same kind of situation that his brother is Judah. But what Joseph and how he lives his life is this, is that he lives as if God really does exist. That God has a say in his life. You might put it later on in the Old Testament, is that he's got a fear of the Lord. He lives his life acting and in doing his life as if God has a role in that life, that God plays a part. And so when he's confronted with this woman who is uh, trying to manipulate him into immorality, he responds uh, with the statement in verse number nine, how then can I do this great wickedness, which is stealing the wife of somebody else, and, and more importantly to him, and sin against God. He's far from home. He could get away with things and people wouldn't know about it. He's just merely a slave, but yet he's still thinking, God exists. This is the God I serve. He's a part of my life. How could I do this that I know that is wrong, that's a sin against him? I'm not going to do it. And we looked at last time the fact that sometimes you do what's right doesn't guarantee that it's going to land you in good circumstances from human point of view. Because he does what's right, he is standing up for God, and where does it land him? It lands him from being a slave to being in prison. Now, we do make the comment that he should have died for this, but it's probably that Potiphar figured out what went on here and was mad uh, at his wife, but in order to keep some order in his home, he just sent Joseph off to prison. And in this, we see in verse 21 of chapter 39, which kind of goes to the story we've read today, it says this, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and you go what's that word mercy it's the word has said you see it throughout the old testament this word that's so hard to translate because it's got so many variations of it god loves him god's got a loyalty to him god's got a faithfulness to him god's faithful to joseph he loves him he's loyal he's helpful he's merciful and you say well what happened well joseph was given favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison 
And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because, why? The Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. See, what God has done is that God has given Joseph what we have termed uh, throughout providential relocations. At times, you might not think that these things are uh, good things, but God in his providence relocates Joseph. He takes him from his home, and you could just kind of alliterate it if you want to think about this, and puts him in a pit, then sends him to Potiphar, then moves him to prison, and you say, what's next? Well, we kind of know the rest of the story. He's going to end up before Pharaoh. But God does this, and as God is doing this, Joseph is able to see in the midst of it, even though the circumstances aren't good. He's been sent to prison. Uh, the, the term that's used to describe it, it's a pit. Uh, the, if you were to translate it one way, not a pleasant place. Not a nice place. But even in that, God's with Joseph, and Joseph is seeing God's hand of help, taking care of things, being merciful to him, showing him grace. I mean, many people would be individuals who would just, if this circumstance, any of these circumstances were to happen to us, if we were thrown in a pit by our family, if we were made a slave to another individual, we were made a prisoner uh, in the worst of prisons, we would be individuals that would say, I'm going to have nothing to do with God because God doesn't care about me that God doesn't exist, that God is somehow missing what's going on here. But for us this morning, and in just uh, the short uh, period of time that we have here, I, I just want us to remind ourselves of this, that we have a responsibility to be like Joseph in this way, that you're to maintain your faith in God even when it looks like you have been forgotten. You need to maintain your faith in God, even though it looks like you've been forgotten. Because there are going to be times like that where you feel that. And you have to maintain what you know about your God. See, Joseph is in this prison, and even though he has been shown mercy by God, he's still in prison thinking that he is going to spend the rest of his days here because he thinks that because as he describes his situation later on he just simply says listen i'm a foreigner in a foreign land i have no one to represent me uh, i'm here in this prison i think i'm going to be here forever but even in the midst of all of that joseph is quick to show that he has faith in god now, the situation that comes up here is this situation that it came to pass after these things that the butler and the, of the king of Egypt and the baker had offended the Lord their king, and Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers, against the chief of the bakers, and he put them in ward, or in the worst part of the prison, in the house of the captain of the guard, and into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, and they continued to season in the ward. So we're really not sure when they show up. 
We know that Joseph was 17 years old when he is sold into slavery. We know in chapter 41, when he shows up to Pharaoh, he's 40, or excuse me, 30 years of age. We know that when he finally interprets the dreams, that there's a two-year delay before he shows up in the palace of Pharaoh. So more than likely, he's 28 years of age. He's uh, been a slave and a prisoner for 11 years. When he is, meets up with these two individuals, people in great positions of power. For us, we don't think of the baker and the butler, and, and, and understand this when we're talking about the butler, not a person who's dressed up really nice and answers the door. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, the term probably would be better to describe it this way, the cupbearer of the king. It's a job that Nehemiah had eventually for a king later on. And you say, why was it so important uh, to be the cupbearer of the king? Well, because you, A, uh, gave the king the things that he wanted, he desired, he wanted, uh, as far as drink. But more often than not, if you wanted to poison somebody, you'd stick it in the drink. You'd go, why? Because it would cover whatever poison was there. And so what you had as an individual who was a cupbearer was a person who was making very sure that was what, what was presented to the king, A, was very good, but was also healthy for him and would not end his life. And so this individual would be a very trusted individual, not just somebody chosen out of a group and saying, you, you do that. No, a person that was uh, of trust. And so you would say for the baker also, the baker, the one responsible for baking the goods that the king would eat, uh, you could insert poison in that also. And they're the individual that presents this. Uh, they could uh, poison the king also. And so these are two individuals that had great responsibility in the halls of Pharaoh. They've done something wrong. Out of curiosity, we would love to know what made the king mad what made Pharaoh mad, that got them here. But we're not told. But they're here. And Joseph is given daily contact with these individuals to make sure that their needs are taken care of, <laughs> what needs you could have in a, a prison, and be responsible for them. And what you have is that all of a sudden you have a situation that happens. It happens in one night. These two men have dreams, and they're vivid enough for them to realize this is just not something that's normal. This is something unusual, what we saw, because there was very definitive things that happened in this. And for them, they are thinking this is something that was a communication from the gods. I mean, realize this, we, we sometimes downplay dreams in the Old Testament, but God did communicate through dreams. He communicates uh, to Joseph in, jo uh, jo jo excuse me, in Genesis 37. You have these men that have dreams. Later on, Pharaoh has dreams. You think about a foreign king later on in our Old Testament, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and multiple times he has dreams. And God's communicating things to uh, these foreign kings. More often than not, these dreams came to foreign kings where God was trying to communicate things. And for these men, they have these dreams, and, and they're upset. You go, why are they upset? Well, uh, verse 7, 
Joseph came in and both these men look rather concerned, sad, agitated. In verse 7, he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of his Lord's house, saying, Wherefore ye look ye so sadly today? And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. See, what these men were used to is that in the courts of kings, they had individuals who were just simply interpreters of dreams. The king would say, I dreamed this. And they'd say, okay, we'll go and consult our books. And they would go back and consult the books and see the different details and then come up with something and go, well, this means this and this means that and this means this and these things will happen and the like. Uh, they had books, uh, and you have all cultures like this. Even in Daniel's day, when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and uh, he comes to the wise men, and he says, okay, I want you to interpret my dream, but I also want you to tell me what my dream is. And they go, wait a second. No king has ever asked that before. I mean, you tell us the dream, and we come up with something. You know, we make something up. We go back to our books. You're asking us to interpret your dream without you even telling us what the dream is. I mean, there, there were in the courts of kings throughout ancient times, individuals who were just merely there to, uh, the king would say, I had this dream, you tell me what it is. These men are sitting here, having been in the court of the king, seeing this type of thing going on. They said, we had these dreams, but there's nobody here that can interpret dreams. We don't have an official person to go back, look at the books and whatever, and make stuff up. And in the midst of this, Joseph has an opportunity to reflect as God. To display God to these individuals individuals who have been raised in a court where there are multiple gods many gods and joseph responds in verse uh, number eight at the end just simply this do not interpretations belong to god Is God not a part of every person's life? Is God the one who allows certain dreams to happen and certain dreams not to happen? Uh, is God, therefore, the one who can interpret what those dreams mean? And he just simply says, there's a God who can do this. You don't need uh, individuals to do this. God can interpret your dreams because he's the one who creates them or allows them. And he just simply says, Tell me them, I pray you. And you have these two different dreams that take place. Uh, and the first one is the chief butler, and he has this uh, vine that has three branches on it. And after three days, you have uh, the fact that the, or excuse me, the, the, the vines are there, there's three branches on it, and the, they bring forth the certain things that are there. And he takes the grapes that are on it and squeezes it out gives it to the king and the king's happy joseph interprets this dream and he just simply says this the three branches are three days verse 12 yet within three days shall pharaoh lift up thine head you know your head's downcast right now well he's going to lift it up you're, you're going to look up to different things and be happy and thou shalt deliver pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou was butler he simply says, in three days' time, you're going to go back, and Pharaoh's going to take you back, and you're going to have uh, this job that you once had and enjoyed being a part of it. It's yours. 
Now the baker simply goes, oh, wow, I kind of have some of the same details, so let me tell you my dream. His is that he has three baskets on his head. You, you find uh, this uh, in verse number 16. I had three white baskets on my head. The uppermost basket was the one where all the good bread was at. The birds did eat them out of the basket on my head. He's simply going, oh, like three, maybe, you know, three days is going to happen. And Joseph just simply gives the interpretation. He says three baskets are three days. Verse 19, yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head kind of going oh you know the baker's hearing i mean you just hear 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 how he's hearing it oh your head's going to be lifted up from your neck what that simply means is in that culture he would be hanged he would hang on a tree and the birds that were eating the bread were going to eat his flesh he is going to be put to open shame not allowed to be buried which is one of the worst things that could happen in ancient cultures to not be buried and he's going to be left out on the tree and verse 20 when it came to pass the third day which was pharaoh's birthday that he made a feast unto all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants he restored the chief butler unto his butlership again he gave the cup into pharaoh's hand but he hanged the chief baker as joseph had interpreted them you go well what happened there there is a god who can interpret dreams I mean, this is going to have impact on this butler. Now, it doesn't have the exact immediate impact that you wish it would have. But at least he now knows there's a God who can do this. There's a God, a God who has the power to interpret dreams. Now, in all of this, you, you had Joseph in this time where he's talking to these prisoners. He's reflecting God to those uh, that are in need. He's telling them there's a God who can do things that you can't even imagine. He's capable of doing things that your gods aren't even capable of. But in the midst of that, you also have that Joseph is calling for this. He's requesting to be remembered. He's not only reflecting who God is, he's requesting to be remembered. You have to go back in the story of the, where he's telling the interpretation of the chief butler. And he tells him that you're going to be restored to your job. But in verse 14, he says this, But think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness. Ironically, it's that word has said that we had used about the Lord showing mercy, kindness. He goes, can you show me some his head? Uh, can you show me some kindness? I pray thee upon me unto me and make mention of me to Pharaoh and bring me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also have I done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. He just simply says, when you get out, get me a job in Pharaoh's court. You know, whether it's interpreting dreams or something else, remember me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm a foreigner. I'm not supposed to even be here. No one's going to hear my case. So please, when this happens, remember me. And the emphasis is on this, that you remember me, uh, make mention of me and bring me out of this house. Think on me. I mean, he's just simply saying, remember me, remember me. Don't forget about me when you finally get restored and you say well what happens well the end of the story is verse 23 
Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph and forget him? Forgot all about him. See, that's the point where you suddenly have the events where Joseph would have been familiar with the fact that the butler made it out. He's okay. And then waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. It's not until two years later that this chief butler even thinks about him. Forgets about him. He appealed to the Hesed, the faithfulness of this man. This man's not faithful. He's not loyal. He's not kind. He's not like God. But you say, okay, so does Joseph give up on his faith in God? And the answer is no. Because you have to go to chapter 41 in verse number 14 when, when finally Pharaoh has this dream that he has and the chief butler goes, ah, oh, I forgot about this guy. There's a foreigner that's in uh, the a prison and it's my fault. I don't remember him, uh, but he can interpret dreams. Pharaoh says, call him up, bring him in. Verse 15 of chapter 41, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream. There is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not me. But in whom? Look at this. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. His immediate response is not to go, yeah, I can do it. No, his immediate response is, I've got a God who can do this. I've got a God who's capable of doing these things. A God who can do anything. I'm not going to be able to answer your dream. I can't interpret it, but there's a God who can. I mean, what, what do you have here? It's just simply a statement. Even though jo jo Joseph feels like he's been forgotten by his only human hope out he still has a god who is there who is capable of doing anything that is still watching over him even though he's in a jail god is prospering his hand while he's in jail and when he finally has the opportunity to be able to brag on himself who does he brag on Who does he boast in? Not himself, but a God who keeps providentially locating him in our mind to the worst location, but this God is watching out for him and taking care of him, and he doesn't give up his faith. The problem with most people is that if they had gone through this for 11 years and felt like this had happened to them and this had happened to them and this had happened to them, they would turn their back on God. I've wondered about this. What would Joseph have been like if he had turned his back on God? He would have just been another prisoner that's bitter. God would never have been able to use him, bring him out uh, if he was the bitter soul that he could have been. But no, Joseph still focuses on his God. He maintains faith. And what is God able to do with a person who has faith in him? You think about this even when it comes to 
uh, the book of Hebrews, when it talks about faith and, and Joseph is kind of hinted at in the story that that listing in Genesis chapter, uh, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 11 in that hall of faith. God honors faith because faith honors God. God is the rewarder of them that believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that what diligently seek him ones that are still looking to him in faith god is able to do things with them that he couldn't do with somebody who goes oh i don't know if god really exists because look at my circumstances i i, I just really can't trust him at all no uh faith that honors god god's able to honor people of faith that are like that joseph doesn't give up his faith uh he could have and he would have missed out on what God is going to do by lifting him up, not only to save others, but to save his own family. And as you read the story in Genesis, to save the world at that time. And it's because he did not give up on his faith in God. There's a story that is told about a man by the name of Darby who lived back in the 1800s and he was an individual who got infected with a gold fever and he left the east coast and he went out to colorado while he was out in colorado he actually hit a spot where they found gold and they followed a vein for a little bit and he bought machinery to dig this out and and set up a mine and bought the rights for uh, the piece of land that he found this at and he dug for a while and eventually the vein of gold ran out He had made a little bit of money off of this, but he just said, you know what? It's not worth it for me to spend any more time out here. So he finally found a junk dealer who bought his machinery, was willing for pittance to buy the piece of property he had, and he paid off what debts he could and went back to the East Coast. What the junk dealer did was this. He said, before I sell off all this machinery that's here to off to different people and, and, and groups and companies, I'll bring in an expert. Brought an expert in, the mining expert kind of looked around and, and did some digging. And he goes, I, I'm guessing there is a vein in that direction. The mining expert dug about three feet. And what happened in history is that he found probably one of the richest veins of gold in the, in the history of the United States. You go, if Darby had just dug three more feet, if he had just held out three more feet, he would have been one of the wealthiest individuals in the United States history. Darby learned from that lesson. He heard about what happened there. He became an insurance salesman. And uh, what happened after that is he never took no for an answer and became wealthy in his own right. Fact of that story is just simply this. There's so many of us that finally get to a point in life where we just feel like nothing's going on and that God has abandoned us, that he's forgotten about us. And we go, you know what? I don't need him anymore. It's just me. Only I can take care of myself. Only I can do this. And what we do is we miss out on the blessing of God because we don't maintain our faith in Him. We don't hold to Him. 
And so this story, what we have is that this is a faith that does not give up, does not give up God, does not go away from Him, but holds on to Him, even in the worst of circumstances. And, well, we kind of know the rest of the story, so it kind of gives it away. Joseph didn't have any insight in that. It wasn't that he was thinking, okay, in two years, suddenly I'm going to be in Pharaoh's court. That's what's going to happen to me. No, he's just simply saying, it seems like it's going to continue to last and last and last like this. Does God really care? He still maintains his faith going, God's a good God. God's a God who cares. God who's one who's infinite in all of his ways. And he doesn't give up his faith, which allows him to then be used by God in ways unimaginable to Joseph and to anybody else because he maintained his faith in God. Don't give up your faith. Don't run from God in those, those horrible times. Look to what you know about him and cling to that and he will see you through. Lord, we thank you Joseph is an example in the Old Testament of a faith that clings to you even in the worst of times. And it's not to say that if we keep in, uh, holding to you in faith that suddenly we become fantastically rich or have unusual positions of power. But if we abandon our faith and turn our back on you and turn from everything that we know about you and go our own way and try and solve our own problems... It could very well be that we miss eternity because we've given up our faith in you and your son. Those that cling to you and your son are those that one day will rejoice in your presence with a blessing that's undeserved. To be a child of the king standing in your presence forever rejoicing and fellowshipping with you in a place that human minds can't even imagine you've given us that promise that if we hold in our faith to you that we have a home in heaven so lord help us in those dark and deep times that uh, we will not abandon you turn from you but in those times cling See you for what you are. Know what the Word says, even though our emotions may run uh, furiously against uh, our faith in you. May we continue to cling to you, knowing that in the end, you do reward those that diligently seek you, that hold to you. May we maintain our faith that will not let go. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.